The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good day, everyone, and welcome again to another edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, Richard Address, and we're coming to you as usual from the studios of WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia. We're streaming live on WWDBAM.com, and you can reach us at Boomer Generation Radio at Gmail or like us on the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. And, and as usual, a reminder that these shows are archived and podcasted on my website, uh, www.JewishSacredAging.com. And we'll be right back with our first segment guest, Adam Brown. From the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at my alma mater, the Mighty Temple Owls. And we'll be doing that right after this message from our good friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Kendall is committed to working with others as we together transform the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888 888- Welcome back to our first segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio, coming to you again from WWDB AM 860 here in traffic-snarled Philadelphia this morning. It's a crazy day to get get around. For some reason, the accident gods are active. We welcome Adam Brunner, the director of the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at Temple University. Welcome, Adam. Thank you for being with us here on Boomer Generation Radio. I'm glad to be here. It's a pleasure to be with you. So um, you're part of a growing phenomenon of... Uh, of um, Baby boomers and older adults coming back to school to learn. Talk to me a little bit about what, what's the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. That's a big name. Yes, sure. Um, well, there is a foundation called the Osher, Bernard Osher Foundation that was uh, funded by a wealthy man named Bernard Osher who has an interest in lots of different areas, three areas, but one of them is lifelong learning. He's an older person himself, and he's very interested in supporting Supporting uh, lifelong learning across the country. There are 118 OLLIs, which uh, is an abbreviation for Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, about 118 around the country, one they, in every state of the country. Are they affili- all affiliated with universities? Yes, they're all affiliated oh. with oh. the universities. And the Osher Foundation really identifies lifelong learning programs that many times have already been in existence um, that they believe are um, noteworthy, and they support them with funding. And eventually, if they um, like the organization, they endow them with um, endowments, and we were fortunate enough to receive some endowments from the Bernard Osher Foundation. So they, um, and, and you call it an OLLI? Yeah, OLLI is O-L-L-I, uh, an acronym for Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. Oh, cool. Okay, yeah. so Temple University, so how is this organized? Is is it 
is it literally part of the university? Is uh, it's are the classes all over the city at the main campus? How does how how is this organized? Okay, so um, yes, uh, we are housed. We are part of Temple University, and all almost all of our classes are held at Temple Center City Campus at fifteen fifteen Market Street, right across from City Hall, and right above from Suburban Train Station, right. uh, major transportation hub, which really has a lot to do with why we're so successful is our location. Um, but so the program has been around since 1975, and it was always part of Temple University. Originally, it started at Temple's campus that was on Walnut Street, and in 2001, we moved to 1515 Market. And um, we uh, have always had a really lean staff. Right now, we have only three full-time staff, and two student workers who assist us. And uh, by the way, I have great staff, Sakina Hill and Jenny Wynn, and uh, myself. And then we have great student workers who work with us. And we, um, but we are also supported by um, volunteers who perform professional level roles as volunteers um, to help us operate the program because obviously three pam- three people can't support um, a program that serves 1,300 members. 13, now, so you say they were members, so not students. Right. What, what, talk to me because in, in some of the material we talked about a little bit before the show, this is, I, you just can't like walk in and say, oh, there's a class in you know um, the theology of baseball. It's just something came to my mind. <laughs> I think I want to sign up and take that class. <laughs> you may have to teach it because we don't yet offer that class. It's a short class. Um, <laughs> but but there, you just don't do that. There's a membership thing. Talk to me right. about that. Yeah. So um, you know, um, if one, someone wants to. Take our courses. Uh, they first have to join as a member, and the way our particular Ollie is organized, they pay a flat membership fee of two hundred and ninety dollars for the entire year, and we hold courses in the fall semester. In the spring semester, which is called the spring in universities, but actually happens mm-hmm. over the winter. And then we also have a, a semester in the summer. So for $290, they can participate for the whole year. Wow. Uh, we offer uh, 100 classes in the fall semester, 100 in the spring, and a little over 50 in the summer. So a little over 250 classes for a whole year for $290. It's almost like a dollar per course right. you know, that we offer. And we also have a very generous partial scholarship program so that if people can't afford the full 290 we um, uh, give them we give out partial scholarships for people who qualify so anyway so so they pay this flat membership fee they become members they get an Ali ID and then they can um, take um, many courses um, one of the other important things to say about how we're structured is um, 65% of our courses are what we call walk-in classes. And those classes you literally don't have to register for. You can just, you see them in the catalog and you want to go to them, you just show up. You don't even tell our staff that you're going to those classes. Oh, wow. So 65% are walk-in. And then 35% actually require registration, um, sometimes because the instructor feels that they can only handle a certain number of students, or sometimes it's because a class is so, has, there's such a high degree of interest that we have to, you know, limit it to the number of seats that we have available. And um, so, um, so when somebody becomes a member, they can 
take walk-in classes or registration classes. And in terms of the registration classes, they have to go online um, over a two-week period to register for the registered classes they're interested in. And they not, are not necessarily guaranteed they'll get into each class they want. It's like, the, it's like the old days when I exactly. used to reg- stand at Mitten Hall and wait That's to right. register before. That's right. Yeah, and, except now we do it online. Yeah, I know. You know it's processed by computers and software. And um, one thing that we start are starting this year for the first time is for the classes that are what we call oversubscribed, you know, where there's a high degree of interest, we are going to run a lottery on those classes. What? So that it's randomly determined who gets so, it. So just for the uh, – and to be uh, – to get into the class, you have to be a member Correct. Of, of the you have, of, to, you have to join as a member and pay the flat membership fee to become a member. So tell me what uh, give me three or four of the most popular. You say classes that are oversubscribed. Okay. What are the winners? What I mean, um, that's a bad thing to say, but what are the more oversubscribed classes? Yeah. Um, well, one that's very um, well attended is called Another Opening Another Show, and it's a course that where the instructor, who's actually a retired lawyer. Um, but has had an interest in theater and film his whole life, and he is an avid movie and film um, theater goer. So he goes to Philadelphia, New York, and he attends the latest theater and film and talks about what he sees. And he also engages the audience in what they're seeing that they enjoy. So that's what people go to this class that seats about 100 people and they hear reviews of uh, film and theater. Another really popular class is actually um, led by a retired Philadelphia newsman, uh, Dick Sheeran. I don't know if you remember him from the um, television. But Dick Sheeran teaches a class on understanding media, and he talks about, you know, some of the um, kind of icons in media today who are on the TV or radio or whatever and um, shows YouTubes and discusses what he, from his perspective, what's unique about their approach to um, uh, sharing information across and what, what can you uh, just uh, – this may be unfair off the top of your head, and you don't have a catalog in front oh, of you. Oh, that's okay. No, I can, I'd be happy to. What are some of the more um, interesting, uh, offbeat yeah. uh, type of classes? I'm glad you asked that because I, I can do it off my head, top of my head. Um, like one class is visiting art venues. So they actually um, – what they do is they meet um, at offbeat – Art galleries in the greater Philadelphia area. Oh, cool. So once you sign up for that class, you will um, they'll, you'll get a schedule and it, and it includes times and the location of the art gallery. And your class actually meets at that art gallery and they get a tour and learn about um, you know something um, about this each of these different art galleries. Another example, which is an unusual class, is um, why airplanes crash. It's taught by a. Um, a a person who actually investigated airplane crashes. Oh. He, he was he had many um, um, roles throughout his career. He was also a pilot for several years, but he studied airplane crashes and he knows a lot about the most famous airplane crashes. And one of the interesting things about that is I've had a number of people who had, you know, a fear of flying take that class and actually gain reassurance and overcome their fear because they've learned about what we've learned about why airplanes crash and how the efforts we've taken to correct those problems. And then, That's pretty cool. Yeah. So those are just some examples that's, that's, of off that's, the unusual. That's really cool. But we have all – you know, with 100 classes a semester – all kinds of unusual classes to choose from. So the the how many weeks does a class go? Um, our typical semester.
semester is anywhere from 12 to 14 weeks long, and most of our classes are 12. To, uh, most of our courses are 12 to 15 weeks long. 12 to 14 weeks long, and um, but sometimes an instructor will choose to only teach six weeks. Um, rarely we'll have a course that only goes on for four weeks. Like we have some financial planning courses that are only four weeks long. Um, we have a class on, um, you know, understanding um, Medicare and health insurance that's only four weeks long. But most of them are at least six weeks. And, and no, I'm sorry, a small number of six weeks, but most of them are 12 to 14. And how many hours? A two-hour classes? Um, an hour or an hour and a half typically, although our – Hands-on art classes and our film classes are usually two to two and a half hours long. But most of our kind of lecture-oriented courses are an hour, an hour and a half. We're speaking with Adam Brunner, the director of the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute here at Temple University in Greater Philadelphia, um, learning about the, the diversity of and, and of classes and opportunities for lifelong learning and um, there's lots of interesting. Th- I, I really want to pursue right after we, we're going to take a little break from our with our friends at Kendall. But when we come back out of the Kendall spot, I just want to I want to pursue the, some of the whys. What's going on? Because I, I we have a funny feeling that it's a, it's a lot of this is being driven by the baby boomers and their attempt to really keep learning, uh, and thus the diversity. And we'll come back with that with Adam and uh, the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute right after this message from our friends down the street at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio was brought to you by Kendall a system of not-for-profit communities and services in eight states that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Please join us in together transforming the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to our first segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. We're with Adam Brunner from the... Um, Osher Lifelong Learning Institute here at Temple University in Philadelphia. You're talking about, uh, in our first uh, conversation here, the breadth of uh, classes that are offered and the membership. $290, did you say? Yes. $290 a year gets me access to this catalog and uh, this diversity of classes. As I travel from my work um, and, and go around and, and do some teaching, I'm struck by the um, the rising interest on the part of baby boomers and even the people, the generation above us, to continue learning. Uh, that they, many of them have been to college, they are bright, they may have transitioned out of full-time work, but in no way does that mean that their brains, that they've stopped. What are, can you give me some sort of a demographic breakdown, if possible, just even anecdotally, of, um, you, you say have, how many, how many students go through the program typically Thir- in 1300? So are they, could you just sort of like speculate, um, what's the breakdown demographically? Um, well, in terms of age, we actually uh, surveyed this uh, several years ago that um, the majority of our students are between the ages of 65 and 75. Um, but um, what I've noticed in the in, more, in the recent years is that we're getting many more people joining between the 50 and 65 
age range, and we haven't looked at it um, in the last couple of years, but I think we're getting more and more people in that age group. Um, in terms of uh, other demographics, um, we are still largely um, white, <laughs> and that's something we would like to really um, improve upon. And um, But we, I would say we probably have maybe about a 5 to 7% um, group of non-white groups, you know, everything from um, some Asian members, African American, and um, but so we st- and and a Latino as well. But we have a ways to go in terms of that kind of diversity. So uh, oh, one other thing yeah, to say yeah. is that we have a, quite a number of men, um, which I guess you you might assume to be the case. Um, uh, but still, I would uh, when we last t- checked it, we had about sixty five percent women and about thirty five percent men. But I still think that's pretty good for this kind. Yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Uh, but um, and I wouldn't be surprised if, you, if that if your demographic is beginning to attract more of the core baby boomers, I would not be surprised if that male quotient also starts to rise as yeah. well. You, you talked a little bit in the first our first uh, before the break about the role of volunteers, and we and you mentioned this before we went on the air too that the, that this. The institute is really, in many ways, volunteer-driven. Could, could you just talk to me about what, a vo- what are the roles of volunteers? What do, what do they do? You mentioned the curriculum thing, you met, but but what you know? There's no. You only have three staff. So what do these volunteers do? And, um, and how does one get involved as a volunteer? Um, we have about ten really active volunteer committees, mm. and um, we make we let all our members know about these committees, and they can come to our office and inquire how to get involved, and we can connect them with the committee chairs. Um, but we have everything from we have in addition to courses, we have other um, c- uh, de- components to our program. We have a trips committee that organizes trips to um, in the greater Philadelphia area as well as to New York and Washington. Washington, D.C. Um, we have also a uh, active library that has over 800 books of, um, you know, um, New York Times bestsellers over the last several years, and people can borrow books from our lending library. We have a, and th- that's um, run by a committee of volunteers. And is this um, all at the all at uh, 1515 uh, 15 Market Street? Yes. Okay. Yeah. We um, we have. I mentioned curriculum. You know, one, one of our most important committees is the curriculum committee. It's about 12 members whose job it is to vet new um, courses for the program and interview new instructors to decide which courses to run. We have a fundraising committee that raises, that encourages members to donate um, money to the program so that we can afford to purchase equipment that enables us to um, expand the classroom in a sense. You know, our program, when I started working there about 10 years ago, we had about 650 members. And over time, now we have 1,300. But we're poised to really expand to, we could expand to serve 1,500 or more over the next three years um, if we could accommodate them. Um, The problem is that in our space, we have classrooms that are limited size. So what we're doing is purchasing streaming technology to, if you're teaching in one classroom, we can stream it to a second classroom so that 100 people can attend the class rather than only 50. So um, that's something we're doing with the, the donations that our fundraising committee raises. Any, so, any chance of using uh, classrooms in main campus? Um, it's possible. Um, it it, um, it, it uh, that's something we're exploring. We're exploring a lot of other, you know, 
uh, venues where we might be able to rent space as well in the Center City area. I have to say that I I do think Center City is a great location. Oh, it's, it's for great. Older, for older people. They love coming into the city because there's so many other things to do once they leave our classes. Um, and a and lot of our generation are, you know, transitioning. I have friends who they're sold the big house in the Burbs. And they're now buying these places in Center City, uh, apartments, condos, who – and they'll – I remember one family just telling me point blank, uh, I don't need a car. I get out. I, I walk anywhere I want. Um, 15 minutes from every restaurant, the theater, the concerts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what do I need the big house in the Burbs for? Right. Yeah, so we have a lot of those center city people coming to our program, but we also have quite a few people from the suburbs, as you say, and also people from New Jersey and Delaware. We even have some members who travel um, as far as Harrisburg. Wow. Um, I talked to one member who started training it from Harrisburg. Yeah, can take, yeah. Who just recently started renting a condo in Center City just so she could be kind of here during the week. This is a that. silly logistical question, yeah. but as a New Jersey resident, it may not – I don't want to take Patco. I want to, I'm going to drive and go some. How do you are – there, is there parking? Yeah. yeah, we have an arrangement with a parking lot. Um, at 16th and Randstead, which is just a block and a half away right. from us, so that people can uh, pay $9 for the day to oh. park there, which is a lot cheaper than it would be it's, um, at any parking lot <laughs> in Center City. About $20 cheaper. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yes, yeah, so parking's an option, and we do have quite a few people who, who drive down, but uh, many more people take public or take the train. What do you think so many people are, are invested in this? What, what's, what's going – I know this is a growth segment for a lot of universities. I, I, I know some universities. I think Penn State is one of them. They actually are involved with creating older adult communities on campus or associated with campus so people can take advantage of this, much like Temple does. Is, uh, what's, what's going on sociologically that's driving this engine? Well, you know, you know that um, the statistic is that – 10,000 people every day. every day are retiring. Right. So um, there are just tons and tons of, of people who are reaching retirement age who are looking for something to do. Um, I also think that um, travel is an expensive way to spend your retirement. So a program like this is something that people can do when they're not traveling that keeps them active, that keeps their, as you say, keeps their mind sharp, um, that doesn't cost that much money. Um, and, you know, it, it tends to, our program tends to attract people um, who have um, considered learning, you know, or, or valued learning throughout their lives. Right. You know, um, but uh, we have people who, who may not have even graduated from high school who come to our program, who, who develop a passion for learning later in life. Um, that's a wonderful thing about retirement, I think, is that you, um, a lot of things that you didn't have time to do um, when you were younger, you now have a little more time to do, and you can actually pursue the things you're passionate about. And that's uh, one of the exciting things, I think, about our environment and any lifelong learning program is that you're getting people now who are at a stage in life where they can pursue their passions, and they're excited by what they're doing. Um, one thing that I've heard a number of our instructors say, uh, these are people who may have been career educators say that this, teaching to this population is the favorite group they've ever taught oh, to yeah, yeah, yeah. because, you know, um, no offense to younger students, they're great, but they're 
um, motivated. They're going to school to get a degree or a certificate. Our people are there for the joy of learning. Right. It's great so, teaching. It yeah. is great. Oh, it's it's great teaching. Yeah. And our, our students are right there on the edge of their seats, full of questions, um, want to share their perspective, you know, um, share what they, what they, the book they read, you know, and what that, that perspective has to say about this or that subject. So it's a very lively, interesting environment to teach. And, and they bring a life, life experience, which That's is right. incalculable, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, um, the role of community and socialization, I would imagine this is one of the either intended or maybe unintended consequences of the success of these programs, that people do meet other people, they yes. get out of their house, they're with human beings, they're in a social situation, they may go out for lunch before or after the class, they, they're engaged, uh, regardless of what they're learning or what the class is about. I, I, have you, I, I'm sure you've seen this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, you know, when we think about our mission, you know, it's obviously it's education first, Mm -hmm. but social socialization is 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 the next um, real um, focus on our mission because people, uh, as you said, when they retire, you know, as we get older, we, you know, we lose people along the way. Right. You know, our kids may move away. So um, our social contacts may decrease. So, you know, um, having a place like this where you can Meet other people who are also interested in learning and broadening the horizons, um, having time to hang out with them and talk. Our, our day structure is sort of uh, created to um, promote socialization. We have usually a classes, classes that start at 1030, go to about 12. And then we usually during uh, between 12 and 1, we don't have any classes. So the people um, can socialize lunch and have lunch together right, and right. talk about what they learn in the morning or looking forward to learning about in the afternoon. And then we have a one o'clock, one o'clock class session. So yeah, the socialization is really important to our members and people have literally, um, uh, divorcees or widows have literally met people. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. if you, Willie, did the research, you'd find that you've, you know, been responsible for couplings yeah. of and, or, a variety or just, of different or just ways. just new friends. Yeah. Know, I don't, yeah, I don't no, want to no, oversell. No, 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 I don't true. want to oversell, you know, the, um, it's you know, very powerful. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the, the learning environment is, is a very powerful, powerful tool. Before we start running out of time, how does, how does one contact you? How does one get involved? What are the numbers? Where is it? You're off the, your office is at 1515 Market Street, right? right? Okay, so somebody listening, they say, gee, you know, I've never, I didn't even know about this is something... It intrigues me. How do they get yeah. in touch with you? Okay. They the first, they could go online and read about our program at noncredit.temple.edu slash Ollie. Okay, do that again. Yeah, noncredit.temple.edu forward slash Ollie, O-L-L-I. Or they can call our general number, 215 Two zero four one five zero five. Say it again. Two one five two zero four one five zero five. Now let me just say one thing about our program right now. Um, you know, we talked about how many people are retiring every day. Well, our program for the uh, third year in a row now is going to have to cap our membership because it's become so popular. So we are just fifty slots away of being full. Um, so I want to say something. So many people mm-hmm. who may want to join our program this year will not be able to because we don't have the space to accommodate. 
appreciate them. So I just wanted to mention briefly that Temple has two other programs that people interested in lifelong learning could pursue. They have There's the Lifelong Learning Society, which is based at Temple's Fort Washington and Ambler campus, um, that has a lifelong learning program that's one day a week on Wednesdays during the fall and spring semesters. And if people were interested in learning about that, they would call 267-468-8500. And there's a third program that serves older people at Temple called Senior Scholars. And um, that program is specifically for people who are either Temple alumni or spouses or partners of Temple alumni. And what they offer are regularly scheduled undergraduate Temple courses that Temple alumni or spouses or partners of alumni can sign up for at $200 a course as compared to over $2,000 a course that the regular uh, four-credit students pay. And if their people are interested in senior scholars, they would call 215-204-2792, 215-204-2792. Okay, so that's senior scholars for you. If I'm, I'm sitting and I want to take a class that's being offered on campus. Yes, um, or any temple campus. Or any temple campus. Uh, it's $200, and I can sign up per for course. that. Yes. Non, like an audit. It's like basically audit. It's ordered. like auditing a class. Right, 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 yep. right. What's right. the looking forward? You're, you're dealing with a huge success, okay? You're, you have to cap membership. You're, you're running out of space. You have 1,300 students ready to go. Looking forward as the executive director of this program, what do you, what do you see as your biggest challenge? My biggest challenge, I would say, is to figure out how to accommodate more members, whether we do it on at Temple Center City Campus or whether we do it somewhere else, um, uh, because the demand for programs like this is only going to increase over the next 10 years. So um, that's my biggest challenge. Wow. Well, that's a great challenge. I mean, it's a good challenge. It's a good challenge to have. Adam, Adam Brunner, the director of the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at Temple University. Um, real fast, the phone number again, 215-204-1505. And the website? Noncredit.temple.edu forward slash Ollie, O-L-L-I. Adam, thank you very much. This is great. Continued good luck. Um, look forward to, to hearing more about the successes of uh, Ali, and uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for being a guest here on Boomer Generation Radio. Continued good luck. Go Owls. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. This was fun. Thank Take you. Take care. Uh, We'll be back with our second segment. We're going to shift gears a little bit here this morning and talk about another issue, a social issue that not only is present here in Philadelphia, but um, we're going to be joined by Carolyn Crouch-Robinson from Project Home here in Philadelphia, talking a little bit about some of the challenges of uh, older adults and homelessness here in Philly and perhaps around the country. And we'll be doing that right after our musical bridge, a uh, little seventh grade remembrances with a little Johnny Mathis. It's a good day for that. You ask how much I need you Must I explain I need you, oh my darling Like roses need rain You 
to our second segment here on Boomer Generation Radio as I try to disentangle myself from earphone wires, uh, being the graceful person that I am. We are very pleased to welcome, I hope, on the phone, Carolyn Crouch-Robinson, the Director of Residential Services for Project Home here in Philadelphia. Carolyn, are you there? I am there. Hey, great, 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 great. Good to speak with you. Thank you very much for joining us. And um, we have so much that we have a little bit, uh, lots to talk about, really, uh, about this issue of um, homelessness and older adults. Just for those people who perhaps may not know of the tremendous work of Project Home, what is it? Where is it located? What do you do? We are located, our headquarters is at 15th and Fairmont. Uh, we have over 18 buildings now in wow. Project uh, in Philadelphia. And uh, we serve, well, last year we uh, served over 900 um, residents throughout Project Home. And then uh, we also oversee the street outreach for the city of Philadelphia. Um, and we're still accumulating those numbers for 2016 and how many we served. But um, typically it's close to 2,000 people. So the older adult population, um that's really what's intriguing me, and I, I know the work of a little bit of Project Home many, many years ago. Did some work with them um, and Sister Mary, and, and know them. Just a tremendous amount of dedication and professionalism of the people like yourself at Project Home. Could you walk me through some of the the challenges? Do you have a sense, in any way, shape, or form? of um, the older adult population that are living on the streets that are homeless? Sure. It might help just to lay the, lay the land a little bit here. 
um, in 2011, uh, there was about 28% of the uh, homeless population was 51 and older. Wow. And uh, as of 2014, which is our latest data, and this is much thanks, by the way, to uh, the National Alliance to End Homelessness and HUD and our friend Dennis Colhane from University of Pennsylvania, who's one of our lead researchers in the U.S. on homelessness. Um, a lot of my numbers today are coming from those sources. Um, but 31% of the street homeless population and shelter homeless population in 2014 were 51 and above. And that's approximately 306,000 people over age 50 living on the streets. And it's up from 23% since 2007. So this is one of two fastest growing homeless populations in the United States, the other being under age 25. Now, this, that, that, let's be clear, this 31% of people over the age of 51 in 2014, that's a national statistic, or is this a local statistic? That is a national statistic, and our numbers locally mirror the, the trend nationally. And in fact, um, there's been studies in several cities across the United States, several major cities, including Boston and New York and Houston, Seattle, um, and right here in Philadelphia, showing that the age 51 plus group uh, on the streets and in shelters is pretty much trending the same. So wow. going up from, you know, 23% now up to 31% of the popu- of the homeless population. Carolyn, I, I will tell you that. That's, um, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but I am. Why, I guess the, the, the basic question is why this growth? Why this rise? What's going on? Well, there's, you know, I, you're, you have a great program here um, that speaks to aging in general, and uh, you know that the boomer population uh, is a large population. And uh, so, as we're as we're getting closer to 2025, the trends are showing that um, it's going to continue to go up, and it's going to continue to get a larger, be a larger population, and mirror that of the United States in general. Um, so there, but there's several things. I think about now it's it's about 10 percent of uh, of the uh, aging population in the United States that are living in poverty, and um, there are increasing health care costs. I mean, some of that has been mitigated by what people you know fondly call Obamacare, mm-hmm. um, but uh, and helped in that way. Um, but also, you know. People are living longer with chronic illnesses and comorbidity illnesses. And uh, in our population, we see a lot of people with serious mental illness and uh, chronic diseases um, such as obesity, um, heart disease, and diabetes. And so that's your comorbid um, uh, population. And so there are increased costs associated with the population, too. So um, there's that. There's a, you know, a lot of folks that are still using drugs and alcohol and in recovery. And, you know, and in that recovery journey process is people are getting clean and then, you know, staying clean. And then if, you know, naturally there are relapses. And um, there's a lot of evidence shown around uh, just your body not being able to uh, kind of keep up with what you used to be able to uh, use when you know, when you have relapses, and uh, that can also lead to some 
increase in medical conditions and costs associated too. So there's a lot uh, having to do with that. And then if you look nationally, the trend is nine uh, seniors for every one affordable housing unit on the market that have applied or and are on the waiting list. So affordable housing in general across the United States, uh, especially for this population, has been uh, challenging as more and more people are moving to the cities and uh, more and more people, the housing is in demand. How much had did the, the downturn, recession beginning in 2008, flood the numbers uh, for this 51, 50 years and older population. Do you have a sense of, did that cause a spike because people lost homes or may have lost marriages or relationships and uh, retirement money? Uh, do you have a sense of that? Yes. In fact, um, you know, post-2008, uh, the trends that we were already seeing with the increase in the 51-plus um, homeless population did did go up, you know, because of this. And we have quite a few stories of folks that came in that um, had lost their housing um, through the, the recession and uh, had become homeless in part, you know, from that process. And uh, so we have quite quite an increase in stories post-2008 from that um that housing crisis across the United States, and that that really affected probably all you know populations across the board, mm-hmm. um, not just the 51 plus. But um, two, we also see um, that the group that's 51 plus, there's still a large amount of folks who were chronically homeless, say, you know, five, ten, fifteen, twenty years ago. Really. So that population in general in the United States is aging. So whereas we might have seen 20 years ago that the largest population of homelessness was, you know, 31 to 40, um, that, that's that been trending up over time. So do, you have a, do you have a sense, Carolyn, of the gender breakdown? Are there more women, more men in that 31%? You know, I don't have a great sense of the gender breakdown. I, I, you know, we track veterans' homelessness really well. Um, there's certainly a lot more shelter beds across the United States for single men mm-hmm. uh, than women. And, uh, of course, um, there's a whole lot of women that are homeless that, and, and single men, I mean men too, single parents, who uh, go into shelter with their kids. Uh, and so... Though that population tends to get housed quicker if you have um, children, but um, so we tend to see more men. But I cannot tell you if that's because there are more men that are homeless per se, um, or the breakdown of of the the, the genders. Do you work with? You, you mentioned the the vets. Does Project Home with this population work with the Veterans Administration in, here in Philly? Any type of cooperative work effort programming? Yes, we have an SSVF program, which there are programs like that across the country. What's that mean? SS Supportive uh, Services for Veterans okay. and Families. Okay. Um, and that is. Uh, headed up by Jean Sioka at Project Home, and um, she's done a magnificent job over the last few years. It's a relatively new program of um, helping Project uh, Project Home and Philadelphia in general get to a net zero of uh, veteran homeless population, meaning 
that at any time we have a system now to get veterans who present homeless into housing and services uh, really rapidly. Um, and so uh, there are cities across the U.S. that have gotten to net zero, and Philadelphia is one of them at this point. Wow. And how, how much inter... City, if that, it's probably not the right word, but obviously, as you mentioned, this is a national problem. And you've indicated that the population, especially in, in these last several years of people 50 years of age and over being homeless has grown. How much uh, um, dialogue do you have with, with similar types of organizations like Project Home in other cities to track, to cooperate, to, to, to share programmatic ideas, resources? Do you do that? Yes. Um, there are great umbrella organizations that help to do this, the National Coalition for Homeless being one, the National Alliance to End Homelessness. Just had their conference in D.C. a couple of weeks ago, and uh, HUD is also a great partner that brings everybody together. Um, locally in the city, we have the Office of, of Homeless Services um, that formerly a, a month ago was the Office of Supportive Housing. Um, and they also uh, do a great job of bringing people together to uh, really work towards ending homelessness, <clears throat> excuse me, as a coalition. Um, also, we, there's the um, Center for Supportive Housing, CSH, um, that does a lot of work around permanent supportive housing um, and, you know, ending homelessness. Um, so w- with the help of those organizations, and then Project Home has um, a partnership with organizations here in the city where we have we keep a list of the most chronic, vulnerable um, people on the streets long term and in shelters. Um, to track and help them to um, get housing and and to follow them once they're in housing to, to check recidivism. And that uh, partnership uh, where we share resources and training and that kind of thing is with Horizon House, Pathways to Housing, and Bethesda Project. Uh-huh. Um, so some other organizations that we work really tightly with. We're speaking with Carolyn Crouch-Robinson, Director of Residential Services for Project Home here in Philadelphia, learning a lot about uh, the rise in older adult uh, homelessness and the challenges that that face us in a variety of different ways. We'll be back with Carolyn and I want to ask you some questions about the housing issue and some of the health care issues, too, because you mentioned that. I know it's you keep alluding to that, and we'll do that right after these messages. This message from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio was brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services in eight states that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Please join us in Together Transforming the Experience of Aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to our second segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio, coming to you again from the studios of WWDB-AM860 here in Philadelphia. And we're streaming live on WWDBAM.com. 
You can reach us again at Boomer Generation Radio at gmail.com or like us on the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. And a reminder that these shows are, will be podcasted and then archived on my website, jewishsacredaging.com. So we return to Carolyn Crouch-Robinson, the Director of Residential Services for Project Home here in Philadelphia. And Carolyn has been... Very, very uh, gracious to give us a whole series of backgrounds about the growth of uh, older adult homelessness here in Philly and around the country. So you, you mentioned housing, and I think at the beginning in your introduction, Carolyn, you mentioned that Project Home has a whole series of uh, homes, uh, facilities scattered throughout the Philadelphia area. Talk to me a little bit about these facilities. They house homeless. Is it permanent housing? Is it temporary housing? Uh, what is it? Sure. Um, so we talk about our housing as a continuum of care, um, uh, all the way from safe havens, for um, which are very small shelters, uh, for people who are experiencing serious mental illness and who are currently chronic homeless, some of whom um, can still be using drugs and alcohol, if uh, and that's okay, just not on site. Um, and then we have uh, a plethora of permanent supportive housing. Um, we do not currently have any transitional housing at Project Home. Um, a couple of our partners do, and that's the great thing about partnering um, because uh, whereas we don't have rapid rehousing or like Housing First, some of our other partners do. All of our housing is um, for people who are interested in being clean and sober um, and in recovery with their neighbors. And um, the majority of our uh, population does have serious mental illness. Um, but, again, we see everyone is in recovery from something, and we're all recovering together. Um, and then uh, we have what's called integrated sites. So um, those are sites that um, people can pay you know, close to market rate and be uh, earning income, say, from 18000 to, like, $40,000 a year and live there um, to the more traditional populations that I discussed just a minute ago. And uh, and then we have our young adults, uh, which is a newer population for us. So we have quite a plethora of um, different types of housing and um, and and supports, uh, various types of supports. We have mobile supports that come in and various um, city agencies that partner with us on that to come in and provide services um, based on the needs of people that live in our buildings. Um, and then we also have some buildings that have uh, 24-hour supports for people that may need, like, medication monitoring and meals on site uh, and require a little bit more about around safety and security. You, 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 you mentioned this um, menu of challenges, mental health, um, chronic illness issues in this growing population. How in the world do you begin to deal with this, with this homeless population who may not be in shelters and who may be in, you know, summertime preferring to live on the streets, as I'm, as I'm sure some of them do. How do you begin to, to deal with it? Do the medicals, do you have a medical staff? Are there people who travel to these locations around the city? Um, this must be an overwhelming challenge. How do you deal with that? Sure, yeah. 
Uh, a lot of people already know about um, Code Red. Code Red is just like our Code Blue in the winter when it's real cold, in the summer when it's real hot, 90-plus uh, for three days in a row or more. We call a Code Red. The city calls a Code Red, I should say. Mm-hmm. And um, people are, we do extra double-down effort to get people in and uh, have cooling stations across the city. Um, During the DNC and even this week still, we're running a respite right at our headquarters um, where um, we just try to get everybody in and have a place to stay with cots. and uh, and meals and uh, and then we do try to place as many people as want to be placed um, in housing um, while they are here. So uh, it's been a major code red over the last uh, you know few weeks here in Philadelphia. So with all the heat that we've been experiencing. But that said, um, in the last couple of years, uh, well, we've had a, a health center at Project Home that developed into Stephen Klein Wellness Center. Um, a couple of years ago. And through that wonderful partnership internally, uh, we have a medical staff, and it's right right up at 22nd and Cecil B. Moore. Um, and uh, we have a dental clinic and a pharmacy. There's a YMCA there. There's a plethora of health and nutrition uh, groups that are going on and support groups. Um, so that's been a wonderful partnership. There's a nurse psychi- uh, psychiatric nurse practitioners there, and uh, there's therapy um, on site there. We have a psychiatric nurse practitioner in training who is a wonderful nurse um, at Stephen Klein Wellness Center that's coming out to our sites, our safe havens. We have uh, two safe havens. And then um, we have a recovery site for men that are just coming off the street for um, drug and alcohol addiction. And then we have um, a progressive demand residence that is uh, for people who are seriously mentally ill um, and need a little extra support like the 24-hour care and have um, a lot of the comorbidity um, diagnoses that we talked about earlier. Um, and that psychiatric nurse practitioner in training, um, she's really been key in partnering with our on-site residential staff um, to uh, really work on these chronic illnesses and and the care that goes into them with the primary care doctors, the um, specialists, uh, and that kind of thing. So we feel like we're getting towards a model, um, and we've. I know that uh, from a residential perspective, we do feel uh, like so much more um, supported and um, and and the ability to affect the lives in a positive way of so many people that have been uh, suffering from um, chronic medical conditions. So we're we're getting close to running out of time for this segment. Let me oh. just ask you a, a couple of real quick questions. This is a, a mm-hmm. huge operation project. As I'm sure people wonder, who funds you? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it's, that's not easy. <laughs> we have about 30 seconds to answer that question. Sure, yeah. At this point, we're at about 65% of private funding and uh, 35% of government funding. And uh, we have a marvelous partnership with the Middletons, uh, who are the Phillies owners, um, that help to basically catalyze funding for new new buildings mm-hmm. coming up. Um, but then a, a lot of it is also through HUD, um, and we just have key partnerships over time, and our uh, our funders have been just, you know, 
They're, they just are. We have great relationships with our funders. How does somebody get in really touch with you and Project Home if they want to get involved with this? Sure. I'm at Carolyn Crouch Robinson, uh, no dashes, at projecthome.org. Um, and uh, our main number is 215-232-7272, and that's also our outreach hotline for anybody coming in that needs to come in. All right, give, give us that the website and the phone number again. Sure. The website is www.projecthome.org. And uh, and then the phone number is 215-232-7272. And here's the easiest question of the morning, okay? Where is this politically, Carolyn? How come <laughs> – I mean, this is an easy question. Uh, you know, yes. and you have like maybe – we have about a minute for you to answer. Uh, this doesn't seem to be um, – I, I, I don't keep – I don't I keep hearing this in the consequence in the conversations uh, on the national level politically whether in the primaries or even now where where is the subject of home? if you if we have 31% as you're saying as in 2014 nationally of people over the age of 50 who are homeless you would mm-hmm. think wouldn't you that this would be at least get a mention in some sort of political dialogue where is it or have I missed it what's going on well, I would um, turn people to towards the Vote for Homes campaign um, that Janine Miller heads up here at Project Home. And what is um, that? They keep track. Uh, if people go on and go on our website and then look for Vote for Homes, um, they really keep track of where the different candidates are on issues that are important to us around poverty, healthcare, housing. Um, just so that folks can get the data about what what the conversations are currently. Yes. So, but I'm I'm, I'm not mistaken that it doesn't seem to be on the radar screen a, a, a lot on national levels. Am I correct? Um, there's, you know, the rooms that we're in, it's a hot, hot button item, especially around affordable housing. Uh, right now, there's a lot going on around pay for success. Which is answering the question, can permanent housing lead to cost savings for healthcare system? And we're finding that it can. And so, um, it's looking at that gap of what the savings is and then putting it towards housing and housing more people and supportive services around that. Um, so it is on the radar. Um, people are talking about it. But again, I would, I would really, to get really educated on this, I would have people go and check out both Pay for Success and the various states that are involved with that and where the, the White House Center for Innovation is on, on this kind of thing, and then also to look at the Vote for Homes campaign. Carolyn Crouch-Robinson, Director of Residential Services for Project Home here in Philadelphia. Lots of information. Thank you very, very much for sure. really educating us uh, on this issue and some unbelievable statistics. I wish you continued good luck. Thank you for being with us here as a guest on Boomer Generation Radio. To all of you, thank you for listening. Uh, whether you're listening on air or online or on the podcast, we'll see you next week. Stay safe, stay safe, everyone. If I can speak, be well. Take care. Thank you again, Carolyn.